Welcome back to another LEO radio podcast. My name is Jim Harris, and I'm here with a lot of instructors today doing a leadership series. Um, why don't you guys introduce yourself before we kick it off? Joey Spralaza, instructor with J. Harris Academy of Police Training. Jason Felsing, also an instructor with J. Harris Academy of Police Training. And I'm Colin Congleton with J. Harris. Colin, since uh, we ended with you, why don't we start with you? Why don't you kick it off? Tell us a little bit about uh, the book we're going to be looking at and uh, a little bit of background. Sure. So um, as Joey said, you know, we're getting into a series on leadership here, and we thought a good place uh, to start for that was a book by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin called Extreme Ownership. Uh, these two gentlemen were Commission officers in the SEAL teams, combat veterans, they they led Navy SEALs uh, in combat in Iraq. And they put this book together uh, to outline some of the fundamental leadership principles that helped them to be successful leaders uh, in combat. And then they, through the book, they relate those principles uh, to people who are not necessarily in the military, uh, primarily business. But there's a lot of stuff in here that's very, very useful for leaders uh, in, in any capacity, in any profession. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to do a deep dive into that. And then, uh, we were discussing before the start, I thought it was valuable to, uh, include in there for our veteran listeners that, uh, Jocko was actually a Mustang as well. So he was a prior enlisted seal before, uh, he got his commission as an officer in the teams. Uh, a lot of, a lot of us who have served, uh, find that experience to be very, very valuable, you know, having, having, uh, experienced, life on both sides the the non-commission and commission side uh gives guys a lot of per, uh, valuable perspective so and uh one of the things i want to hit upon with what you talked about is anyone any leader because in law enforcement you know when we took typically talk about the term leadership you're thinking about command staff first line supervisors mid-level managers your lieutenants or captains majors whatever it may be but in law enforcement and actually throughout the country, we are not just looking at the formal leaders in an organization. Every single member of our organization is a leader. Uh, in law enforcement, we don't want a bunch of followers. We want a bunch of leaders within our organization, somebody who's going to see something and take charge and take action in the moment. You can't always wait for a formal leader to step onto a scene to handle it. So I love the fact that you said about Colin, because it, it's so true that it's about all leaders at every rank, every level of the organization. Right. And one of the things that I really love about this book, too, is um, listeners will see as, as we get into the breakdown here, uh, there there's a lot of practical tips for leading up and down the chain of command. So whatever position you find yourself in, whether you're uh, a brand new cop or, you know, a seasoned vet on uh, on the tour, but you don't have formal rank uh, all the way up to the chief. But it's also, uh, I find, to be a, a great book for helping you to lead uh, in your own life as well. And I, I think that's an important concept for people who are striving to be genuine leaders. So, you know, it's not just applicable at work. It, it's helping you to, to be a leader, starting with yourself, you know, Lead, leading yourself in the right direction, but being a leader uh, for your family, for organ any organization that you're a part of, including uh, your profession. One of the things that uh, hits home and resonates with me too is for these officers, especially as they gather experience and they improve in their own careers, 
the more that they're able to bring solutions to the table rather than just problems, that's such a level of emotional growth, professional growth. And this, this book hits on that too, right? And like what you're talking about, managing up and leading up. When you're bringing to your command staff and bringing to the people that are your superiors solutions to problems that you found, it helps with number one, you're giving input. It's enlarging your personal career. It's enlarging your experience with your career. And it's helping them to actually come up with a solution. And especially if you're the boots on the ground, and I know Jocko goes into that a lot, right? With, with you have to have your ear to the ground and who knows what's happening on the ground better than those frontline officers, those frontline supervisors. So if, if you're that frontline supervisor or that frontline officer and you see a problem and you see a solution, don't be afraid to bring that forward. That Those are the people that should be bringing that forward because they have the best insight into how to solve those types of problems. One other thing I would just throw out uh, just to so so that listeners have an idea of how we're going to approach this and break it down. Uh, the, the book is divided into parts and then within each part there's chapters. Uh, so we're going to we're going to work kind of chapter by chapter and each chapter has a uh, a broad overarching theme like extreme ownership or uh, chapter two, no bad teams, only bad leaders. And then within those chapters, there are principles uh, and, and we've selected some quotes directly from the book to illustrate the principles. So the, the discussion is uh, largely going to be about the uh, the principles. Part one, winning the war within. Uh, chapter one is extreme ownership. What is that? You know, obviously it's the title of the book, but what does he mean by that? Uh, so the first principle on there, on any team in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. What do you think of that? <laughs> I'll tell you what, that uh, it's a strong statement, as you could imagine. But I think the biggest thing you have to take from it, and again, I'm, I'm a new-ish leader, at least formal leader, uh, with only about a year and a half, two years, formal leadership rank. But I see people every day working that wish to pass the buck. And that's the issue. This is across all agencies. People, you know, a new guideline comes down in New Jersey or a new policy or procedure, and they just say, it doesn't apply to me. I, it's not, I'm not going to own that. And I think that's where organizations can start to fail without, you know, strong leadership. These individuals, these leaders need to understand that everything that comes down is part of the job. They must own it. And uh, they're just as accountable as leaders that are above them. So the leadership passes throughout every different rank of that chain of command and everybody has to own what they need to do. So I a hundred percent agree with you, Jason. And one of the things that if, if anybody's ever gone to any of our command one command two or a road sergeant tune up, if anybody's ever gone to any of those classes, one of the things that we drive in to the minds of the people that we are training our future leaders, our current uh, leaders that are, that are, part of the study of leadership is why does it occur? So why do our leaders pass the buck? Why do they not take responsibility? And to be honest, it's not their fault because we learn from our current leaders. How do you know how to be a sergeant? We've watched the people before us. How do you know how to be a lieutenant? I've watched that person before me. 
we are consistently developing our next generation of leaders by what we say, what we do, how we act, how we drive, the professionalism that we display in the moment, people are learning from us. And most of our leadership skills are learned in that moment. And what are we doing? We're not changing that culture of passing the buck. So when when failure occurs and there's a leader who's, who's passing the buck, he probably learned that behavior from the people before him. And now he's perpetuating it downward. And that's one of the key things in leadership is understanding you have to recognize that you may have been trained wrong. Accept this responsibility right now. Own everything in your world. No one else to blame. Have to acknowledge the mistakes and admit failures and take ownership of them. And if we do that right now, if you start doing that as a leader, you are changing the culture of our environment. And there's a big professional shift that's been happening over the last at least decade. And the more I've studied leadership and the more I've taught with Command One and Gone and now experienced students from across the country and seen these issues across the country, I can definitely wholeheartedly see that our profession as a whole is growing in an, in a sense of making a mistake is not bad. And Jocko talks about that too. Like you should be put into a position to fail sometimes. If there's not something that's an emergency situation, that's not life or death. If you're planning an event or if you're doing something like for Jason as a new leader in your organization, you should be put in charge of something that's like a new project, right? And maybe though your command staff gives you input and maybe you do something incorrectly. You're going to learn from that and you're going to grow professionally. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people that would get embarrassed in the past or would think, look at that as being a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. That ownership of your failures is how you grow as a person. It's how you grow as a leader. It's how you grow professionally and emotionally. And understanding that and accepting that is crucial for us doing the best that we can in this in this law enforcement environment that we live in. And the more I've studied leadership and comparing the how leadership works in the military, how it works in private industry, how it works in law enforcement, we're such a blended role because this is a career. And I'm not saying that the military is not a career, but everybody that comes into law enforcement is coming into this as a 25 plus year career. So you're going to make mistakes. And the earlier that you accept those mistakes in your career, the earlier that you use those as a platform for growth, the easier your career is going to be. And especially as you make that critical shift into being a supervisor, owning those failures, and more importantly, not throwing your subordinates under the bus. If you throw your subordinates under the bus, you're going to lose any, any credit or anything that you have with them because they're not going to look at you as tr being a trustworthy person and trying to rebuild that trust. is going to be very difficult for you. Yeah. I'm glad you, you brought up that particular thing. We talk about the cycle of positional development in our courses about how you get, you know, first you have to develop confidence in your own abilities and then people will start having confidence in your abilities. You need that foundation of confidence, mutual confidence in yourself and them in you in order to start building trust between you and your, your people, um, you and your peers. And the minute you start passing the buck, the minute you start blaming someone else, 
they don't, they're not going to trust you and they're not going to have confidence in you at all. So, um, you know, absolutely true, Joe. And it's the opposite. No, go go ahead, Colin. Go ahead, Joe. No, I was just going to, this actually leads right into the next points and principles here because it's the opposite when it comes to success. Though you, and directly from the book, the best leaders don't just take responsibility for the job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his team's success, but bestows that honor upon his subordinate leaders and team members. That is 100% true. And I'm sure we've all seen the, the people that like to take credit for the mission that are in those leadership positions. That should be, that honor should be bestowed on the people that are actually carrying out the mission. You know, if I, if my team fails, I should be the face of the failure. If my team is successful, they should be in front and I'll be there, but it's the team that succeeded in the mission. It's not me. I'm not the individual. It's that team. And that mentality has to be the, the, the mentality, especially specialized units. But in patrol, when your squad does something well, when they handle a job well, dispatchers, when you're in a pursuit, and I mean, Colin sent me an insane pursuit that these guys had um, where they captured somebody that just did a shooting. That team that actually caught the people that did the shooting that were involved in the pursuit. It wasn't just them. It was the people that were monitoring the scene that were providing aid to the victim. It was the dispatchers that were keeping unnecessary radio traffic out there. That entire team has to be recognized and understanding that as a leader, when you go into those, into those types of critical incidents. And when you're dealing with those types of crazy calls that we sometimes have to deal with that stuff and how you treat your team and how you make everybody feel successful is going to build a lot of, a leadership credibility for you. And it's going to make people feel great about the work that they do. That's that intrinsic motivation that we look to spark for people. And when you moved on to this second part, right, you, you talk about not taking credit for the success. Some people might point out that there seems to be uh, a dichotomy there between what's said there and what's said in the first statement, which was uh, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader, right? So it's important to, to point out there that there's a big difference between taking responsibility for success and taking credit for success, right? As a leader, the success or failure of the mission lies with you. It, it's your job to ensure mission success. And where there's a failure, you own that. But when the mission is successful, you've got to give the credit for that to your people, you know, and, and then a, a key idea there uh, and, and something that I found very useful, um, the idea of servant leadership, right? And so, you know, one of the things that, that I learned years ago uh, as, as a sergeant in the Marine Corps was that the word sergeant is derived from the word servant. And if you if you approach the job that way, that, uh, that, that your role is to serve your subordinates, take care of them, give them the tools and equipment and training and guidance that they need to be successful and, and to make the mission successful, uh, they will they will take care of the mission and they'll take care of you as a leader too. Um, but one other thing I'd, I'd like to throw out as well, uh, what already just in these first few principles uh, appears to me to, to be an underlying theme or issue. And, and I think we'll see this throughout. And I think it's one of the biggest issues uh, for leadership and and in our profession, uh, and that's ego. I think that um, with each of these points, you can see where ego is a factor. So, um, you know, recognizing, for example, that there is no one else to blame. That's 
that's tough for a lot of people. You have to really check your ego and and look inward and say, how am I to blame for this for this failure or this situation, whatever it may be? Because a lot of times it's much, much easier to point the finger outward, right? Um, and you know, again, like giving the credit for success to your subordinates, that that requires somebody who's humble and who can put their ego aside and say, no, the credit belongs with them. Right. So that that ego thing, I think we're gonna uh we're going to see that come up over and over again throughout the many uh, parts and principles of this book. I think that ego rolls perfectly into one of the last principles of this section. Um, like I said, being a younger leader and my agency in specific, we have a, a whole slew of younger leaders that uh, I'm proud to say that have developed uh, between my tutelage and others and, and really leading what the organization has done. Uh, I'll read right from this passage here. Junior leaders take charge of their smaller teams and their piece of the mission efficiency and effectiveness increase exponentially and a high performance winning team is the result. So rolling ego into that fresh leaders, junior leaders really haven't had time to develop ego. Mainly. I think that those fresh leaders, those junior leaders, they have taken pieces from leadership in the past, you know, supervisors, sergeants, corporals and above, and they're piecing together strong leadership tactics between that and any other type of learning they've done outside and they're able to come in and, and almost be effective in different ways. And I think that other leaders need to, you know, outwardly and inwardly look at themselves and what those people are doing and kind of take pieces from them as well. You can learn from those junior to you as well. You don't only have to look at individuals that um, led before you because there's always different styles. And those older leaders tend to have more ego because they feel more established. They feel they've been doing it for longer. But these junior leaders truly are the future and they're starting their path towards like effective leadership without intense egos. And uh, to hit upon everything you guys are talking about, I think a lot has to do with understanding your role in the organization when it comes to what you're supposed to be doing. And again, it falls back to nobody's ever explained this to people, but why, you know, Colin was saying it's a, the responsibility of success and failure falls on the on the shoulders of the leader. And it absolutely does, because the leader, you're in charge of planning the operation. You're in charge of preparing your team for the operation. So the responsibility falls directly on your shoulders. As far as the team itself, they're not in charge of planning and preparation. They're in charge of the execution of the plan. So if the plan, if if the operation, if whatever you're doing, if it is a success, it's not because of the planning and preparation. It's because of the execution of what was occurring. And your team is responsible for execution. They're doing it. So yes, you absolutely have to give them their credit and, and share that they are the ones responsible for the success. As far as uh, as far as the responsibility for the success and failure at the operational end, and that, that again, that falls directly on the on the leader, preparing your team, you know, making sure they're trained properly, um, and in law enforcement, making sure that you know we're reviewing policies, that we're we're taking training seriously. Uh, Colin and I we talk about this in in uh, our use of force class. You know, what's the best way to to have successful outcomes? It's through training. And a lot of times we just fumble through training. We It's a necessary evil that we just try and force our way through. And our people deserve better. They deserve realistic, situational-based training that's going to put them in situations that they're going to face 
in the real world so that we can prepare them properly for that. And one of the one of the things um, that comes to mind with this last piece here uh, and, and listening to you guys talk, we need to recognize in, in our profession when we have people that are uniquely qualified or positioned to be successful in a particular role. And again, put our egos as leaders aside and allow those people uh, to step up and perform and excel and, you know, recognize that that's going to make the team better. It's going to contribute to success of the mission. Um, active shooter response is is a, a great example of this. You know, the most senior man uh, responding to an incident may not be the appropriate person to step into the team leader role. If you got a guy, uh, you know, there's a sergeant on scene, but you got a guy that's a SWAT operator. Maybe he's a brand new cop. But before he came to your department, he was, uh, you know, he served in a ranger battalion. He's he's got multiple combat deployments. Who who should be making tactical decisions for that team? Probably the guy who's got the most tactical experience, right? And and if if we can recognize that uh, as leaders, we I think we can again make our teams much more successful. And and that you know the the active shooter example is just one of many, even when you talk about operational planning and things like that, you know, you might, uh, you might have somebody that's not a formal leader in your agency, uh, but maybe they have that master's in public administration. They've got some specialized training or education that qualifies them to have a seat at the table. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think we might want to do here? Is there something we haven't considered? You know, and I, I think that that's something, um, I know some agencies are great about that, but it, I think a lot of agencies uh, could do a lot better at that. I think that this ties directly into this whole principle right here ties together with the ego. The more that you push the success below you and the more that you push the failures on you, it's going to make you a more humble person and your ego will naturally be checked the more that you do that. The more that you recognize that you were the failure and your team is the reason that you succeeded, you might be the face of it at a debriefing because of the nature of your rank. But the more that you push the individual successes on the officers that were handling that scene, the more that I think that you're naturally going to become a little bit more in check. And that's a really basic incident command principle too. exactly what you just discussed, Colin. Just because you're the ranking officer responding to a scene, if you have a, an officer that's handling the scene well, why take over the scene? If he's done everything, gotten to the point of where the scene is now stable, if there's nothing life or death, let that person run with it. Let them develop that scene. Let them see for themselves the incident command system working. And now when they decide... Now the next sergeant test is announced. They had that success on a scene. Maybe that person that wasn't considering becoming a sergeant says, you know what? I liked running that scene. I liked running. I liked the way that that felt. Maybe that leadership, formal leadership position now is something that I want to do. Maybe that's how we start recruiting leaders in our organizations by letting them run those scenes and run those types of incidents. And you know, an active shooter, especially if you have the most qualified person there and that person's not a ranking officer, let them make those decisions. And the more that we check our egos, the more that we let people do that, 
the better it's going to be for our profession as a whole, especially for your individual department. I think that's how we recruit future leaders, which has been an issue in my department. A lot of people aren't even interested in taking the sergeant's test because they say, ah, the, the small raise isn't worth it. So how do you get that intrinsic growth? How do you get them to have that spark inside of them to say, you know what, I do want to take responsibility for officers below me. I do want to take that next step. I think that that's a powerful tool. So yeah, I, for sure. I want. Can I hit on something that you just said about the... Um... Uh, you may be the face of the failure. Uh, you had Joe, you just said that, you know, in a debrief, you might be the face of the failure. Um, absolutely true. And I, it's, a, it's funny that you brought that up because I was just out in uh, another, I was out in a, across the country teaching a class and we were talking about success and failure in this specific topic. And they had a, uh, a newer uh, mid-level leader or should I say mid-level manager in this case, uh, mid-level manager who was in charge of a, of a serious incident. And the incident uh, was a, a debacle. So they have the after action to review how what could we do to make this better? That mid-level manager didn't even show up. And they didn't show up because they knew the failures rested with them. And instead of Take and uh, this is a teaching moment for everybody because those who those who were uh, part of the organization they look at this individual and they're like horrible leader and you know here you are a newer mid level uh, manager or you should be a mid mid level leader here you are in that position you should be trying to build the credibility and in that moment you could have accepted that failure. And learn from it for yourself, but also did team development for your for everybody else within it. It's it's funny because you, you use those words, manager and leader. They it's worth <laughs> taking a second to talk about that, right? A monkey could be a manager, right? And truthfully, it takes no skill to be a manager. You learn a job. You are managing people. Maybe you're managing your workforce. You're managing the people that are coming into work, making sure you're meeting your staffing. That's not leading. Management of personnel is completely different than leadership of personnel. It's funny because you just posted that that uh, video of me and all my friends at work are uh, are all uh, kind of making fun of me for it. But they, uh, I have a very junior officer that just texted to me. I'm like, oh, no, Jim's letting you in on my secrets, my leadership secrets. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's uh, that one of the books that I actually broke down for for you, uh, the five levels of leadership. He opens up the book by saying leadership is a verb. It's not a position. Jason took a test for sergeant. Right. I took a test for lieutenant. Colin took the test for lieutenant. Jim, you took tests to get all the way up to deputy chief. There's a list of people that are ready to replace us. Right. What you do in that position is the act of leading and how you execute that act of leading is what differentiate, differentiates you from everybody else. This mid-level manager that you just talked about didn't even show up to this debriefing. How do you recover from that? Yeah. What like Imagine the mountain that you have to overcome to try to recover from that. And truthfully, if he went, maybe he'd be embarrassed. Maybe he'd he would get put into his place, but he's not getting fired. He's not losing his position probably. Uh, clearly not if he's still in that position and didn't even show up to it. But like, that's where that ego checking really comes in, right? It's like the way you lead is by bringing people with you, developing people and moving forward. And how do you move forward if you can't get past this 
small hurdle. And even if it was a major failure, get past it. Because now in the future, people will, will see that if you go into that same situation, they're going to think it's going to be a disaster all over again because you were a failure the last time. How you recover from that is more important than the failure itself. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought up that point, by the way. And it's uh, that's a big one for a lot of us, I think, is recognizing the difference between a manager and a leader. And, and I've heard it said many times that, you know, we have a lot of managers and and not a lot of real leaders. Uh, you, you manage resources, you manage equipment, you manage uh, incidents, you lead people. And like you said, that's a that's a verb. It, it, it's it's not what you say. Uh, it, it's what you do. So um, with, with that, if you guys are cool with it, I think that would be a, a good part to move on to the uh, the next section here. Absolutely. All right. So uh, part two, I'm sorry, uh, chapter two, still in uh, part one of the book here, Winning the War With It. And so chapter two is no bad teams, only bad leaders. And that first principle, when it comes to standards, as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. No matter what has been said or written, if substandard performance is accepted and no one is held accountable, if there are no consequences, that poor performance becomes the new standard. Man, this ties directly into a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about. Um, and, and it is so relatable to our profession, right? I mean, our, our profession is guided by uh, SOPs and guidelines and you know, all, all these um, policies, you know, stacks of books of policies, right? Uh, but it's not what's written. It's not what you what you preach even, uh, but what you tolerate. You know, one of the um, one of the examples uh, in, in real life for me with this was as a sergeant, you know, it, it starts with the roll call. And, uh, you know, I had some people Listen, I, I work in a in a fairly large city, you know, urban area, uh, city cops, and city cops are not generally known for being the spit and polish types. They're not generally known for uh, when you see them out there on the corner, looking, you know, squared away with uh, razor sharp creases and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when I would hold a roll call, hey there is a standard and there are certain things that will not be tolerated. There's an expectation. Uh, and, and for me, you know, those little things were important because if you're not willing to do the little things, right, how can I expect you to do the big things? Right. If you don't have uh, the, the integrity to be, be accountable and do the right thing when it, when it comes to how you show up for roll call, being on time, uh, being prepared, being squared away and, and wearing your uniform properly, then how am I going to expect that when you walk out the door, you, you're going to have the integrity to do the right thing when nobody's looking. Um, the, the key thing with that, though, is you you cannot preach that and hold people accountable to that if you're not setting the standard yourself. So Absolutely. as the leader, you if you're going to if you're going to be that guy at roll call, then you better be. Uh, the first one there, you better have the most squared away uniform. You better know what you're talking about when you stand up there and address your cops. Um, you have to really set the bar. You you cannot, you know, one, of the, one of the things that we joke about on my job is the guys that used to correct your uniform while they're standing behind a desk wearing a Yankees jersey, you know, yeah, right. or, or a uniform top with shorts. Like, come on, 
how how are you going to stand there like that and and call somebody out for wearing white socks right like give give me a break you you have to set the standard and lead by example absolutely uh, especially when it comes to this principle and one of the it's it's actually a huge block that we talk about in command one and now the more i've taught this class across the country the more i've interacted with different apartments it's the differences in roll call are substantial and I've, I asked the question, so in New Jersey, probably the biggest overall change in my career, two things, the body camera and the use of force policy change that came out a couple of years ago. So when that came out, we all have power DMS, right? You push out use of force on power DMS. Is that training your personnel? No, everybody's just opening up, clicking and signing it. And that's it. And if we, as a frontline supervisor, because I'm a patrol tour commander, if that's all I did to train my personnel, hey, did you guys read the new use of force policy? Great. All right, let's go out there, guys. Now, the way that we deploy OC is completely different than we did a couple of years ago. If I don't train people in that, whose fault is that? Is that the officers? Maybe. No, that's your fault. That's where we talk about the extreme ownership the ownership of making sure that my personnel are held accountable to these new standards and who's going to train them. Yes, we have a training unit. Yes, we're going to go over that in our in-service. And my department is better than most with training. But to wait for that training would be a failure on my part. As a frontline supervisor, you have to be an expert in use of force. You have to be an expert in pursuit. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't mean that you're going to be the Krav Maga or Jiu-Jitsu black belt but you know what the principles are. You know what we need to do and what we need to know when we go out and patrol. And your officers have to be brought up to that standard. And it's done in roll call. Roll call is not a union meeting. It's not where we complain about all the failures of our department. It's not where you complain about your command staff. It's not where you complain about stuff that happened off duty. It's where you get this training done. And sometimes, especially in a busy department like yours, you might only have 10, 15 minutes. So pick out a, a principle a day that you want to go over with these guys. Make sure that they understand it. Make sure you have an open door policy. That's the leadership. That's where you're owning that position. That's the stuff that makes a difference. That's the stuff that's going to make people want to come to you to ask those difficult questions. Maybe they're too embarrassed in roll call to ask, when can I deploy OC? But they know you have that open door policy. Now you talked about it in a roll call. And now they actually want to come to you to have that discussion. That's how you're developing your personnel. That's how we succeed. That's how we bring people up to those standards. Yeah. So right away, I think we're we're starting to see how everything that we're talking about here ties together. The further we go into the book, you're going to see uh, that every one of these principles and ideas is, is uh, interrelated with every other one, right? And so... Uh, to take one little piece from chapter one, the best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission, right? And how can we apply that to, to this principle we're looking at here or or the idea of roll call, right? Uh, you're setting the standard. You're letting people know what you will and won't tolerate. When you see an officer making a mistake, uh, maybe... Um, you know, it, it's a bad search, for example, on a car stop, right? And mm -hmm. and you you should be going, man, that, that kid, it looks like he wasn't trained properly or he doesn't understand the constitutional law element, you know, that, that was applicable in, in that stop. A lot of sergeants would go, well, hey, we have a training bureau. That's not my job, right? 
hey, if this is one of your officers, that they're your people, you take Absolutely. responsibility for that. You recognize the problem and you do something to fix it. So now uh, you take that roll call and yeah, you might only have five, 10 minutes. I tried to keep mine to under uh, under 10 minutes and that was with, you know, going through the roles, giving everybody their assignments, checking their, their uniforms, all that kind of stuff. So at least five minutes was dedicated to training. And it was, hey, I saw this on a stop last night. Let, let's talk about that. Hey, do you understand uh, these principles, the, the automobile exception to the search warrant requirement? Uh, when can you pull somebody out of the car? Uh, do you understand that you you need particularized RAS for the pat down and the RAS for the, for the stop may not give that right. Like, and this is where, um, again, you know, the, the ego and the personal accountability, if, if you as a leader don't know this stuff, you got to push yourself to go out and, and get better as a leader, get better as a professional so that you can give that guidance to your officers and you can set the standard. And, and lastly, you know, looking at our our role or how we contribute to every and any failure, um, where you see your officers failing, it's easy to point the finger and say, "Man, that that guy's jacked up." But are you pointing the finger at yourself and and genuinely asking, "What did I do or not do that contributed to that failure? Did I do everything I could to ensure that no, number one, that officer was properly trained, and number two, that they were comfortable coming to me for some guidance, for some information if they needed it. You know, it's easy to say, well, you should have asked me. Maybe there's a reason why they didn't ask you. Maybe they didn't feel comfortable and that's your failure as a leader. So. The, uh, yeah, one of the things you guys are, are talking about is earlier, we're talking about passing the buck and you guys are talking about roll call and training and the, uh, the sergeants, like you were saying, Joe and Colin too, the sergeants are like, oh, well, you know, the new policy came out that we have a training bureau to train our people. And it, that is in in, a, in and of itself, passing the buck. You can't, like Joe, you said, you can't wait for somebody else to do your job. If somebody above you didn't do a training bulletin, if somebody above you pushed it out, but failed to uh, include the training, well, then it falls on you as a leader to take that ball and run with it so that your team is prepared. You are responsible, as we say, you're responsible for the people directly under you. You can't look around and say, well, it's their responsibility to do my job. They're, they didn't do the job. You got to do it for your people. You can't pass the buck. Yeah. Where, where I do pass the buck, though, is if I see somebody that's an expert in something, if I see somebody that just went to use of force training or just went to a case law training, I will pass the buck on them to train everybody else, including me. And that's part of checking your ego at the door, that's, too. If you have somebody. Called Kelly. Called Kelly. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's, an, that's another art form that we'll get into later. But the uh, but uh, you just had somebody studying for the sergeant test. They probably know all the AG guidelines like the back of their hand. If there is a use of force issue or a case law issue, let them come to roll call. and Let them discuss it. Just because you're the person standing behind the desk doesn't mean that you can't delegate or pass the buck on, on that type of training so that they're now they're taking ownership of this policy. Now they're teaching it. They're getting better prepared because teaching something makes you makes you more comfortable with that material. So let them do it. You know, if they just went to a training, some specialized training, let them do it. So I agree with that for sure. Um, 
I guess I've been sitting here just looking at this word uh, tolerate, tolerance. So I know we could speak about leadership styles in a whole different podcast. There's 8 million of them, but just to broad down to two, um, and I know Jocko speaks about either in this book or another one of his books, there's micromanagers and there's hands-off leaders. So I don't want to speak as to, you know, how obviously there needs to be a blend of both of those things. But if you're so hands-off that you're just tolerating substandard work or possibly not reaching your mission to the highest extent, that's when you know people aren't going to respect you as a leader. They're going to see that you just seemingly don't care. That like uber tolerance is is so out of the realm of what needs to happen in that instance because the mission's not being completed you know, to the highest standard uh, that's possible, or your individuals that are working underneath you are completely missing out on the knowledge that you offer and the ability that you have to lead them. I see it uh, from agencies all across the state that I've spoken with. There's too many leaders that get to the role. Maybe they get to sergeant. They're still boots on the ground, that middle manager, but they're just that manager. They're so hands-off. They feel like they've already made it. So they think that their folks underneath them are, you know, they want to be leaders. So they're going to rise to that occasion. Well, really, they're not. They're staying low because that's the type of leadership that they're seeing. Uh, and it's sad when you see that because they're not developing, you know, the future of leaders. More the themselves, really. The laissez-faire style. They're very hands-off. Right. And I'm very laissez-faire. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. Uh, I just think leadership is certainly something that can be learned and taught. But there is a small shred of it that is an innate ability. There's some and, people that just don't even have the motivation to want to learn to be leaders. So those people don't have that gift. But if I, you've got that gift and you wish to develop it, which you really have to do both, uh, I think you can have some laissez-faire, but you're you're always going to have to manage a little bit. I know manage has been that bad word while we've been talking today, but managing is part of it. If the leading is working, that's fine. Everything's, you know, ducks in a row. But if the leadership's not working and the mission's not being, you know, succeeded, or run to the best of its ability, you're going to have to manage a little bit. Yeah, so I, I think uh, what you're saying really goes directly into the next point, which is the leader must pull the different elements within the team together to support one another with all focused exclusively on how to best accomplish the mission. And, and it sounds to me like um, part of what you're saying, a, a big part of what you're saying is you know, where it talks about the different elements within the team, you as the leader have to recognize what those elements are. You have to know your people, know their strengths and weaknesses. You have to know the ones that want to step up into that leadership role, the ones who don't, the ones who want to be left alone and figure out how to best bring them all together and get everybody working uh, in the same direction, working cohesively and maximizing the effectiveness of that team. Everybody's going to be able to contribute something. If you're if you're leading them well, uh, but you have to you have to recognize those elements and um, you know and, and pull them together effectively. That goes directly into knowing your people. If you don't know what people value, if you don't know what pe makes people want to come to work, that's a failure on your part. If you don't know the right person to send to these calls, that's a failure. The guy that's the very militaristic guy that's very squared away, that would be perfect at an active shooter. He's the first person you want on that scene may not be the person you send to a victim of a sexual assault because maybe he doesn't have that bedside manner or maybe he does. If you don't know that, that's a leadership failure. You have to find the round holes, get the round peg, 
and line them up appropriately. But if you don't know your people and maybe you have somebody coming to your squad that's been looked at as a problem child, maybe that person has been looked at as being a negative person in your organization. There's something in law enforcement that they do well, or maybe not. But how do you know that if you don't get to know your, your personnel? And if you don't know your personnel, how do you even know what element? How do you pull those elements together? If you don't know some of the personal differences with people, like I said, we have 25, 30 year careers in law enforcement. Maybe people butt heads. If you don't know that and you put them as partners in a car together, whose failure is that? It's your failure as a leader. That's where we need to learn and know our personnel. That's how we can accomplish our mission. There has to be a personal element in leadership. I'm really glad that uh, that you brought that up. And, you know, I think that we regularly point out that law enforcement is a quasi-military profession, right? A, a uniformed service, if you will. There are certainly a lot of parallels, uh, but it's important to recognize that there are some really significant differences. And when it comes to what you're talking about, Joe, I think one of the, the big differences and challenges is that in the military, you don't just work with your peers and subordinates. You train with them. You live with them. You are together around the clock, uh, especially when you deploy together. Uh, but leading up to deployments, you know, you, you're spending several months immersed in training where, you know, you're, you're living together in the field. You are together around the clock and you get to really know those people uh, intimately. As leaders in this profession, we don't have that. So we have to be, uh, we have to make extra effort and be really deliberate about trying to get to know our people. Um, and, and I think a really important part of that is, you know, there's a finally a growing movement, a shift in our profession uh, towards resiliency and taking care of each other and recognizing some of the mental health challenges that, that officers face. Uh, if you don't know your people, how are you going to recognize when they're off? And and are you really being a good leader if, if you're not able to take care of your people, if you can't recognize when they're struggling? Um, so, yeah, you, you've got to make the extra effort to get to know them, whether, uh, you know, that's that's doing a squad dinner or, um, you know, getting a lunch one on one, you know, rotating the squad and getting some one on one time with each of them. Uh, over a meal and, and sitting down and talking to them, getting to find out about their family and, you know, things like that. It, it's really, really important to develop those personal relationships. And and uh, here again, there there is certainly a dichotomy. We want to maintain a level of professionalism um, and, and there is a balancing act there. Uh, and and I, I recognize that, but you have to make that effort to get to know your people personally so that you can effectively lead them and take care of them. And it's funny. Well, not funny. It's honestly sad. Uh, I was listening to a different a different podcast, uh, law enforcement related. And uh, the person in this podcast is actually saying that you shouldn't socialize. You shouldn't be associated with the people that you work with. It should be kind of you punch in, you do your job, you go home and you kind of leave it at the door. And at the rank of officer, maybe you can do that. Maybe. But you definitely can't do that if you're a leader. You definitely can't even do that if you're an informal leader. You have to have some person. And I'm not saying that these people have to be your best friend. You don't have these people don't have to come to your family gatherings. They don't have to be the people that you hang out with regularly. But you have to have some sort of a personal le uh, level of understanding. Because, again, 
just going back to that simple OC example, you want there to be that open door policy and you want them to be able to come to you with problems. And if you know that maybe this person's off, maybe this person's going through a divorce, maybe this person is having some personal issues, maybe you kind of give him an easier post for the day if that's something as an option in, in your organization. Maybe you know that he has a newborn and he was up for the last 24 hours and has gotten no sleep but doesn't want to burn time because he has so much other stuff going on in his life. Maybe you kind of leave him inside for the day if that's an option in your department because, again, you know your personnel and you know that they they know that they can actually come to you with this type of stuff. If they don't think that they can come to you, Maybe you put this guy out on the road and maybe he crashes because he's so overtired. In his mind, he's doing the right thing by coming to work, but he's not doing a service to anybody. There has to be a personal element. We have to understand what our people are going through in their personal lives so that we can kind of cater to them. And letting letting them know that you're there for them, it goes a long way. I agree completely with everything you guys have said. I mean, certainly breaking bread, getting a meal is one of the best things you can do. I know I try with every squad that I've had, whether I was a supervisor or a regular rank and file officer. Going to a meal was huge and understanding that little bit of personal, you know, mentality of meeting the family, meeting a spouse, you know, meeting their children, whatever you can do. But the biggest thing I think, Joe, that you just said is in our profession specifically, you can't just be a coworker. I think that's a little bit of a lost side that we're seeing. And we can, you know, go into the whole, you know, the, the blue brotherhood and the thin blue line. That's a different conversation. But there's the level of coworker or acquaintance. There's a friend you have to certainly be at least somewhere in the middle here in this job. Mm -hmm. You have to have at least a heightened care for that individual that's working for you or alongside you because we do different work. We, we don't just, you know, we don't work in retail. We don't work in the service industry. Sure. We serve, but we don't work in like the traditional service industry. We do odd things for, for this, you know, this world, we work differently. So you have to know people differently. You have to know them more, uh, you know, definitely you have to see them understand what their strengths and weaknesses are and be able to lift them up and help them in their times of need. I, I think the the key uh, to what you're talking about, because you, you're, you're spot on, it, the things that we do and the things that we expect of another in this profession require a tremendous amount of trust. I, when I go to work with you, I have to trust you with my life. And you're not going to build level of trust with acquaintances you're not going to build that level of trust with people uh that you don't have relationships with so yeah it, it you're you're spot on with that um it, it's it's a it's a really important factor and the, uh one other thing I'd, I'd like to throw out uh with this bullet point before we move on to the last one is um we're talking about meals right uh there's a Another great book out there uh, by a guy named Simon Sinek, uh, who, who's phenomenal in the, the leadership sphere. He's got a ton of stuff available on YouTube, uh, but he spent some time uh, with the Marine Corps and studying leadership with them and their style of leadership. And he, he wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last. It's a very, very simple principle uh, that, you know, obviously he was he was able to, you know, write a whole book about. So he did a deep dive on it. But uh, the principle is, is simple, and it's it's basically um, when you watch a group of Marines sit down for if it's out in the field, right? The leaders in that group are going to be the last ones to eat. There, many times you're going to watch them. Actually, not only are they the last, but they're going to get up and they're going to serve their junior Marines, and the most junior Marine in that group 
is always going to be the first one in line for Chow. And everybody falls in by seniority behind him. The idea there is that we're taking care of our subordinates. Again, that idea of servant leadership, right? Your number one responsibility as a leader is to your people and to take care of your people, to look out for their well-being, make sure that they're provided for. And that means everything from uh, their their equipment their to their training to their chow. And if there's not enough food, guess what? That leader's going to go hungry, not that junior Marine, right? So I, I just, I, I've always loved that. I think it's a great illustration of a style of leadership that's a, it's a, again, a very simple uh, idea, but man, it can have a huge impact. And, and if you want to, um, if you're looking for a simple way to build those relationships with your subordinates and show them that you care about them, you know, throw together a barbecue and you man the grill and you serve your people and you make sure that that most junior officer is the first one to get served, man, what, what an impact that's going to have on them and, and their impression of you as a leader. And as a leader, we shouldn't be needing to point to our rank to get our mission accomplished, right? And that's how you build your leadership. That's how you build your trust. And I'll never forget, and he's since retired, and I would love to have a conversation with him about this now that he's retired. He was a lieutenant at the time, and I don't even remember what my question was about. But I remember I asked, why do I have to do X, Y, and Z? And he said, I have two reasons that you had to do it. And he pointed to his collars, one and two. Now go and do it. Okay, you got that. You got the position. You're a, you're a lieutenant. I was an officer at the time. And he got it done. But there's a million other ways that you could have done that. And sometimes, like for our department, we use a lot of directed patrols. Our directed patrols are driven by comps that if there's an uptick in thefts, assaults, robberies, we're going to focus our efforts on that area. So I don't even remember what the question was, honestly, but sometimes just saying, hey, we've had four thefts on your days off at this station. That's why I need you to patrol this area for uh, for the foreseeable future, because we want to identify the people involved in these thefts. That's sometimes that one very quick exchange would have been enough to make me take ownership and say, OK, you know what? I'm going to go do that because I do want to catch this guy that's doing thefts. We shouldn't have to point to our collar brass or our stripes on our sleeve to be able to get the mission accomplished. And exactly what you said, Colin, how you do that is by building rapport, building trust. Because now in the squad that I work with, and I hope that they're listening to this, I, when I ask them to do something, they don't really ask why. Because they know if I'm telling them to do something, I'm usually giving them the explanation when I can. And if I'm asking them to do something that's maybe not the most glamorous post or not the most glamorous thing, they know that they're doing it because they have to, and I'm asking them. So how you get that rapport with people is by getting that trust. Have a meal with them. Get to know their family because that stuff goes such a long way. They're going to be willing to do this the undesirable because there's a lot of undesirable stuff in our profession. It, it's there's really there. funny to bring this up. So the, the, the same guy that, that wrote uh, Leaders Eat Last did another book called Starting With Why. And the importance of making sure that that you ensure that your people understand the why behind what it is that they're doing, right? Um, and Jocko talks about this a lot in the book. So, yep. you know, if if one of your junior people uh, fails at something, they make a mistake. Did you ensure that they really truly understood what it was that you were asking of them, and and that they understood? how they were to do it and why now obviously you know that there's 
a, a balance here. There's a time and a place for that. If we're about to go through a door, that's not the time for you to stop and say why. But if you've built some leadership capital, if you have those good, strong relationships and they trust you, they're not going to be asking you why. They're going to follow you, right? They're, they're going to do that, hopefully, flinchingly, unhesitatingly, because they trust you, right? But you may you may be asking somebody to do something and they genuinely don't understand the, the task at hand. It is your job as a leader to make sure that they understand that. Right. And that and that if, if your answer is flicking the collars, man, you are you are failing miserably as a leader. Yeah. 100%. Well, that, a lot of a lot of that has to do with like I, I go back to what I said right in the very beginning. It was that was a learned behavior from the leaders before them. The leaders before them, they didn't give a reason. It was keep your mouth shut, do what I tell you to do. Then the next generation said, oh, I don't want to be like that. So, uh, but they, they learn those behaviors and, uh, you know, what well, we could talk all day about those learned behaviors and how the generations that follow those try to change it. Um, you know, I wanted to know why, and I wasn't told. So when I became a leader and I was giving a task, I made sure I included the why in it so that my people knew, because that's what I wanted. Um, so the millennials were the millennials are generation Y because they're always asking why, right? <laughs> they they I was I was well the fact that you said I was a millennial that's pretty good because I'm a millennial. <laughs> <that. laughs> it's a shame. It's a, it's a great stereotype. <laughs> well, uh, that brings us into you... this last point here. This leader should never be satisfied. We must always try to improve, identifying weaknesses. Good leaders seek to strengthen them come up with a plan to overcome the challenges. Um, and and that's kind of falling right into what we're saying is we we, you know, we saw things that have happened in the past and we're, we're identifying those weaknesses of the leaders that came before us and we're seeking to strengthen and overcome the challenges that I've faced moving forward. I think one of the things that we, we would all agree on uh, is – the frustration when uh, you ask somebody why we're doing things a certain way and they tell you, uh, well, that's just, that's how we've always done it. Everybody in our profession has heard that at some point or another. And man, that, that is not a good answer. Uh, and I like where you started today with, you know, mention of how we're trying to change the culture. Um, you know, well, we've always done it that way, or that's how my, my sergeant did it. Um, if you're going to hold yourself accountable, you can do better. You can, uh, you can look for a better way to, to approach that. Um, but one, uh, practical tool that I'd like to share that, that I find to be helpful, uh, when it comes to this subject in particular, and, you know, never being satisfied, I, I believe wholeheartedly in the concept of positive dissatisfaction. And that is to say, you know, every, um, Every achievement in your career, uh, every stride in personal growth and, and professional development, all that stuff, certainly take a moment to appreciate that, uh, be proud, be grateful, whatever, um, but then move on and look for the next obstacle, the next challenge, the next goal, and and be deliberate about that. And so one of the things that I do uh, for myself and for my guys, uh, the, the, you know, guys in my squad we have a board up in the office and on that board, there's, there's three categories. 
uh, short-term goals, mid-range goals, and long-term goals. And, and we're constantly updating that. So we have our, our waypoints. We have, uh, you know, some, some direction that we're deliberately moving towards in order to uh, improve every day. So, you know, what are we, what are we uh, striving for in the near term? What, what things do we got to get done to accomplish the mission uh, today, tomorrow, this week? Uh, what, what things, what boxes am I checking for my personal and professional development this week, this month, and then looking down the road, what do we want to get done? What do we want to achieve in the next six months? And then in the next uh, year, for example, and that might be things like, uh, attending a, a certain school, uh, getting a degree, getting, uh, you know, getting moved up in rank, whatever the case, so long as you're, you're setting those goals for yourself and your subordinates, and you're deliberately working towards that and helping them to work towards that, helping them to achieve that development. Uh, I think that's a, a, a very helpful tool. It's especially important with the younger officers, letting them see earlier in their career, how important it is to recognize this as a marathon, right? The, the marathon of this career, the development that you're going to undergo for the next 25, 30 years, how are you going to get to the end goal of retirement? How are you going to be like Jim over here, enjoying every minute of retirement, right? Like <laughs> you don't you don't get there just by punching in and punching out over the next 25 years. You have to purposely set your own professional goals, develop yourself and work towards those goals. And us as frontline supervisor, as a leader in these formal positions, that's part of the ownership. And that's part of getting to know your people, understanding where do you want to go in your career and being a patrol officer for 25, 30 years. That's okay. But you're going to be the best patrol officer you can be. You're going to be an expert at handling the calls that your agency handles. You're going to be the community person because you're going to know your community over the next 25, 30 years. So helping that person, and even if they say, I don't ever want to be promoted. I just want to be in patrol for the rest of my career and left alone. That's fine. But you're still going to be the best patrol officer that you can be. I want to make sure that you're the best officer. That's where we take that ownership. All right, now uh, let's, uh, on that note, let's bring it to an end. Uh, we've been going for quite a while. We went through the first couple chapters of uh, of the book, and we'll pick up on the, the next part of this series with chapter three, Believe. And um, I just want to thank you guys for taking time and discussing this book. And if uh, you are out there listening to us, uh, keep in mind that we do talk about real life, real world, situational based um, application of these principles in all of our leadership classes uh, that uh, that we hold throughout the country. So I hope forward, I look forward to uh, having you and seeing you in class. And with that, we'll call it to an end. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys. This podcast is brought to you by the J. Harris Academy of Police Training. J. Harris Academy of Police Training is based in New Jersey and provides law enforcement training services nationwide for promotional examinations, use of force, supervisory development, and other key areas within law enforcement. This podcast is utilized to discuss key topics occurring within the profession. The opinions and information provided is for entertainment purposes only. In an effort to provide this, we often purposely discuss opposite views and opinions to spark conversation and develop discussion points. The contents of the show and show notes are all copyrighted. All blog posts, podcasts, and show notes that are distributed to the public for free can be redistributed via hard copy 
or electronic copy for free only if the J. Harris Academy of Police Training is included as the acknowledged author within the actual media that is redistributed. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall the J. Harris Academy of Police Training, any guests, contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the company be responsible for damages arising from the use of the information provided.